Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krauss. I hope you're staying healthy, I hope you're staying happy, and I hope that you're staying safe. Barry Manilow's song, I Write the Songs, is one of the great ironic tunes to ever hit the charts. Why is that, you ask? Well, because although it was one of his biggest hits, he didn't actually write the song. Bruce Johnson of the Beach Boys did. Manilow wrote many other great hits, just not that one. Today, I'm going to introduce you to the people who actually write the songs. From chart toppers you know and love to their tentative first steps at making music, we'll meet everyone from Bob Geldof and Elvis Costello to Sting and Josh Groban, who will explain not just how they write songs, but why they write songs and what they mean to them. We're like Mary Shelley's Dr. Frankenstein, yes. to some degree. All the songs are our monsters. The chord that was just a chord yesterday suddenly, you know, is a loose thread on a musical cardigan. It starts pulling at it and this thing unravels. I didn't want to write any more love songs. I wanted to write a story about a guy. And basically the Beatles were copying Johnny Be Good. So you realize by accident you've created the emotional soundtrack to people's emotional landscape. And that's pretty serious. I'm not being blasé, but as I say, when you stop hearing them, that's when you start to worry. <laughs> Gordon Lightfoot is often referred to as Canada's greatest songwriter. He's had number one hits in Canada and around the world, and no less a judge than Bob Dylan said of songs like If You Could Read My Mind, Rainy Day People, and The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, that every time I hear a song of his, I wish it would last forever. I can't think of any Gordon Lightfoot song I don't like. That's high praise coming from Bob Dylan. Lightfoot is a certified songwriting legend, but even legends have to start somewhere. In this clip, Gordon Lightfoot takes us back to 1955 and the first song he ever wrote. I just happened to write a song about a fad that was going on. So it wasn't like a, a love song. Or, this is the Hula Hoop fad. song, right? It's called the Hula Hoop song. <laughs> And it was on the front page of Life magazine. There was a, a vacant lot, and there were a hundred people, all hula hooping at, at the same time. They were all spaced out all through the through this vacant lot. And it was in uh, the cover of Life magazine. That's what inspired that song. Uh, wrote the song, uh, learned how to play it. Uh, took it to got my my dad's Buick, borrowed my dad's car. And drove to Toronto and, and played it at a guy's sitting at a guy's desk at BMI Canada, the original yeah. publishing house in, the, in Toronto. It was the only place and that you did, could go did they to buy was it? BMI Canada. Well, of course not. <laughs> <laughs> of course not. Do you remember any of the lyrics from the Hula Hoop song? Sure. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's it, uh, there, there. There was the, the one part that I get criticized was the last lines. It was, and, and this is going to sound pretty crazy, but here's what it was. It was, I guess I'm just a slob and I'm going to lose my job because I'm hula hula hooping all the time. Uh, I used to be the king of the block, the man of the hour, but since the hoop has made me a droop, I guess I'll retire to the shower. I'm getting tired of bending down, can't seem to make the hoop go round. I guess I'm just a slob and I'm going to lose my job. Because I'm hula hula hooping all the time. And you know what the guy said to me? Gordon, he said, the first thing you got to learn, there's certain songs that you never use in a song. One of them is f and the other one is 
slob. I think things have changed a little bit since Gordon Lightfoot was given that advice. Even though you don't hear the word slob in lyrics very often, that other word pops up now more often than it did in 1955. Bob Geldof of the Boomtown Rats co-wrote I Don't Like Mondays with pianist Johnny Fingers in response to the shooting spree of a 16-year-old who fired at children in a school playground at the Grover Cleveland Elementary School in San Diego, California. When asked why she did it, she said, I don't like Mondays. This livens up the day. The song sat on top of the UK singles charts for four weeks in 1979, and the band famously performed it at Live Aid at Wembley Stadium in 1985. On singing the line, And the lesson today is how to die, Bob Geldof paused for 20 seconds as the crowd went crazy, applauding, recognizing the significance to those starving in Africa that Live Aid was intended to help. I asked Geldof about how he felt about the woman it was based on thanking him for making her famous. Here's what he had to say. I felt sick. Yeah. I mean, clearly she was mad, yeah. very disturbed. I'm not sure about now the parole board keeps rejecting. Um, or thing. I mean, you know, I wasn't interested in her. I was interested in the why. You mm -hmm. tell me why. And, you know, ultimately... Uh, we should recap for, for the audience. Yeah. Uh, I was doing, I was trawling through the United States doing a promo tour, 34 cities in 32 days. I was numb with exhaustion, which, uh, and I was numb with America. There was a, a pervasive sort of amorality, I thought. It, it, it was really brilliantly enshrined two years later in Brett Easton Ellis's book, Less Than Zero. Mm -hmm. And I'm in Atlanta and I'm going through the drudgery of another interview. Sorry about that. And, um, <laughs> uh, and the ticker tape starts going, Telex machine, and it's a 16-year-old girl killing her classmates or anyone else yeah. from her bedroom window, shooting across the schoolyard. As I'm there in real time, this mad event that no one had ever heard of mm -hmm. is occurring. And utterly bizarrely, utterly in the frame of mind I was in, just traveling, endlessly talking, this penumbra of doing. And a journalist got her number and called her as she was doing this. And he was saying, stop, you know, why are you doing this? And the girl, looking down the barrel, rest of the thing, said, I don't know, I don't know why. I don't like Mondays, will that do? So there's no reason. Loads of events were happening at the time. There was I'd read in the plane over on this magazine about a guy called Bill Gates talked saying that one day soon everybody would have a personal computer and both they needed to perfect this thing, this silicon chip which they could implant memory on. And I thought William Blake's poem about a universe and a grain of sand had come true. You could put memory onto sand, a silicon chip. So that was in my head 
the romance of that idea and the automaton nature of it. So all this conflates. And clearly this girl was some kind of automaton. And I go back to the hotel and I knock off this song about something, not the event. It's number one in Canada. It's number one in 32 countries. It's banned in America later. Um, but no one knows what it's about. They think it's about going to school or work. And then suddenly it comes out what it's about. And uh, the father who'd given this child a gun every Christmas, what does he think is going to happen? He threatens to sue the record company and they don't put it on sale. Uh, we come forward to today and of course it's a commonplace. And we've just finished a two-hour film on the band. And the man who accompanied me on that trip from the record breaks down crying at the enormity of what he's about to say. That at that time, uh, he said, I'd been on at Geldof that he has to write about America. But not, I didn't want this America. Right. But still it put him along with Neil Young or Bruce Springsteen at the time, who was writing about the culture. Clem Burke from Blondie says, mm -hmm. some people thought it was exploitative, but we needed to hear it. And then uh, Paul Rapport, the guy from the record company, literally breaks down and can't control himself. He says, that was when we didn't do that in this country. Mm. And it's very telling. And uh, I didn't mean that to be the case. I didn't mean it to be number one. That wasn't what I was after. I thought it was a B-side. Um, I never meant any songs to be hits. They were just good pop tunes. I Don't Like Mondays has been covered by everyone from Bon Jovi on the album One Wild Night to Tori Amos on her album Strange Little Girls, among many others. Now, inspiration can come in many forms. In this clip, Alice Cooper talks about the writing of his album From the Inside, a concept LP about his stay at a New York City asylum due to alcoholism. Each of the characters in the songs are based on actual people Cooper met while in treatment. He co-wrote with Elton John's lyricist, Bernie Taupin. I, I called him up when I got out and I said, Bernie, you're not going to believe this. I said, I've got... 10 characters here that we are going to have so much fun writing about. I said, yeah, it happened. Okay, boom, done. All right, now let's see what we can get out of it. You know, and I started telling them about Jackknife Johnny and, and Millie and Billy and all these people. And what we would do, it was kind of funny, was I would t say a line, I'd write a line, and then he would write the next line. Right. And then I would write a line, and he would try to top it by writing the next line. So two, it was like two lyricists playing ping pong. <laughs> and we would always try to stick the other guy with a word that you couldn't rhyme. Yeah, orange. And he did that at one point. He says, orange. And I went, after about an hour, I went, door hinge. <laughs> and he goes, no, that's two words. I said, it rhymes. According to one famous rapper, door hinge isn't the only word that rhymes with orange. Ten years ago, Eminem, in conversation with Anderson Cooper, found five words that rhyme with orange on 60 Minutes. If you're taking the word at face value and you just say orange, nothing is going to rhyme with it exactly. If you enunciate it and you make it like more than one syllable, mm -hmm. orange, you could say, like, I put my orange four inch door hinge and storage and ate porridge with george <laughs> you just have to figure out the the science to breaking down words randy bachman joins us to talk about a song he recorded in 1973 but had worked on for many years before that Here's Randy Bachman on the unlikely inspiration for the song Taking Care of Business. Well, I wrote it in the late 60s, I'm working in Scepter Studios in New York. Uh, paperback writers thought I wanted to write a song like that. It was the day in the life of a guy. 
I was I didn't want to write any more love songs. I wanted to write a story about a guy. And basically, the Beatles were copying Johnny Be Good. Right. The kid with the guitar, Cabin with it basically told a really great story. And I wanted to write a song about our, our engineer. His name was Stanley Greenberg. Uh, he was Florence Greenberg's son. She owned Scepter Records, of which our Shaking All Over was on. Uh, she managed the Shirelles, Dionne Warwick. She wrote their songs. Right. Her songwriters were Burt Backer and Hal David, Ashford <laughs> and Simpson. And we were there with the best of the best at Scepter Studio. We did the Kingsman Louie Louie tour wow. that summer. And it was a great influence on, on me. And I wanted to write a song about Stanley Greenberg, her son, who was our engineer, who was blind. So he'd sit there and twiddle the knobs and get this great sound on our records. And every day to work, he wore a white button-down shirt with a tweed tie, tweed jacket, uh, those little patches on the yeah, elbows, yeah, yeah, yeah. tweed pants, and it's like August in New York. It's 90 and 90. <laughs> I'm saying, Stanley, we're all wearing cutoffs and, and T-shirts. He said, I don't know what you're wearing. I'm blind, right? It's like, well, why are you wearing tweed? It's like it's really hot out there. And he said, I want to be like the best producer in the world, George Martin. I go, well, Stanley, you look like George Martin. I've seen pictures of yeah. him. I said, I want to write a song about you. You wear a white collar to work every day. And I want to call it White Collar Worker. And this will be my paperback writer. So you leave every day at 10. Where do you go? He said, well, I, I have to go to the train station, take the train home. I said, I'll walk with you. He said, okay. I said, how do you get to the train station? Take a taxi? He said, I can't afford a taxi. I count steps. I've never done this before with a blind right, person. Right, right. And he said, I go out and I count 385 steps that way. He's got a white cane. And then I hear a traffic light beeping, and I feel I know that's it. And then I walk 300 steps that way. And I'm walking with him. He said, don't try to help me. I do this every, every day. And so, but the streets are deserted. It's quarter after 10. And we, we end up at Grand Central Station. I'm amazed that he's got there, but he gets yeah. there all the time. I say, Stanley, there's nothing to write about. I need some, some the streets are empty. All the Broadway shows are still in. Right. Madison Square Garden's still in. At 10.30, they're all going to be out. It's going to be the World's Fair parking lot, <laughs> like, after that. And I said, so when do you come in in the morning? He said, I take the 8.15 into the city. <laughs> and I go, oh, and what time do you get here? He said, oh, I get here about quarter to nine, and I, I walk to work and start my slaving job to get my pay. And, I, and so I go the next morning to meet him, and as he's getting off the train, all these girls are there doing their makeup and hair, and they're trying to look pretty, and I write... <laughs> those get up in the morning from the, yeah. yeah, write those lyrics. But my hook, as I've done that love to work at nothing all day, is white-collar worker, just like paperback right. writer. I right. played for the bands, and they go, gag me on, you've got to change that hook. That's in the Guess Who, and then later on in Brave Belt, that becomes BTO. It never gets done. Until one night, we're playing a club in Vancouver. Fred Turner loses, loses his voice. I have to sing the last song. A DJ friend of ours is on the radio, and he says, hi, this is Daryl B. on Fun Radio. We're taking care of business. And I go, wow, what a great song title. And that night on stage, Fred could, lost his voice. Yeah, I had to sing the last set. I didn't know what to sing. I did a Dylan song, Nobody Danced. I did Oye Como Va, which everybody danced yeah, yeah. with Santana's hit at the time. And as I'm stage playing Carlos, I think, what can I do next? And a light bulb comes on going, put together, taking care of business with white collar worker, which you've been holding on a shelf of your favorite things next to your heart for like six or seven yeah, or eight yeah. years, put them together. The band cannot, the band's always said no to the song. The band can't say no, you're on your hostage. You're hostage <laughs> yeah, on stage. Yeah. Everyone's up singing, the club owner's going like this, keep them up dancing. It's the last set Saturday night, he doesn't want them sitting down, he wants them up dancing. So I finish Oye Como Va, I start this new song, yeah. White Collar Worker, that becomes Taking Care of Business. We play it for 25 minutes. I do it over and over and over to remember it, because like, th right. there's no tape recorded running. The crowd loves it, and they sing along, and that becomes the record.
taking care of business, spent 20 weeks on the Billboard Hot 100, longer than any other Bachman-Turner Overdrive single, and it's often referred to as the provincial rock anthem of the province of Manitoba. Now, the name Bob Ezrin isn't nearly as famous as the people he helped make famous. As the producer of records by Lou Reed, Kiss, Pink Floyd, Deep Purple, and Peter Gabriel, he helped define the sound of a generation. Here, he talks about the recording of one of Alice Cooper's biggest hits, Only Women Bleed, a ballad about a woman in an abusive marriage. The song was controversial when it was released in 1975, but as you'll hear in this story, it almost didn't get recorded at all. You know, we were in the middle of doing Only Women Bleed, and we just couldn't get it. Um, we were we had been working on it for hours and hours and hours. So I hired the circus and uh, and um, didn't tell anybody. So we were in the middle of a take, and suddenly the door bursts open, and in comes uh, you know midgets and acrobats <laughs> and a juggler and a magician and people blowing whistles. And the band. The funny thing was, it was like we were we were we were in the middle of playing only women bleed, which is a pretty you know yeah. intense ballad. Mm -hmm. The door burst open, in comes the circus, the band took one look and broke into, you know, broke into a little circus march without losing a beat, wow. which was really great. You know, they just fell right into the spirit of it. The circus went to work. You know, Alice was sitting there completely, uh, he, was, he was like Polak, you know, he was sitting in his chair going, what the hell is going on? And uh, everybody got into the spirit of it. We had a great sort of 20 minutes diversion. It was fabulous. The circus played. They dropped eggs all over the studio floor. <laughs> And then they marched right back out again as though nothing had happened, you know. And, the, and then I, and I counted it in, and we played the take of Only Women Bleed. Wow. made it to the album. She cries alone at night too often. He smokes and drinks and don't come home at all. Only women bleed. Only women bleed. Only women bleed. And it all, it, you know, it all went without any light. There was no talking. It, was, it all went without any verbal <laughs> communication. It just sort of happened. So, um... Well, Those were magical moments. That was great. Years after the release of the original single, Alice Cooper's co-writer on Only Women Bleed, guitarist Dick Wagner, added a new verse to the song to clarify the tune's themes of the toll of domestic violence in a version he produced for jazz and rock singer Wednesday. Forty years ago, The Kings released their Bob Ezrin-produced debut album, The Kings Are Here, on the U.S. major label Elektra Records. Their smash hit power pop single, This Beat Goes On, Switch and the Glide, entered the Billboard Hot 100 and became part of Canada's rock and roll legacy. It's still in heavy rotation on radio today. Joining me to celebrate four decades one of the greatest double A sides ever is singer and bassist Dave Diamond and guitar player Mr. Zero, aka John Picard of the Kings. We start by talking about how hard it is to write a great pop song. Know, it's it's fun to try to, to to follow that formula if you want to call it that of you know verse chorus verse chorus bridge mm -hmm. you know and all that and uh, but it, there really is an act to it and coming up with all the parts because uh, you need a you know like an intro <laughs> <laughs> you know you need a hook right and so Dave came up with that 
<laughs> you know, <it's, laughs> so that was the thing that grabbed our attention when he first started playing it when we were doing a sound check at a gig. And then, um, you know, that led to what's that? And then it turned into, well, it's just something he was working on. And then we put it together and, you know, came up with this beat goes on and then switching to glide was basically the same kind of story. Well, there, because what people don't realize is that they were written as two completely different songs. Well, in a way they were, yes. Yeah. And, and, um, like, like the this beat goes on song, it gets to the end and it goes, this beat goes on and on and on. And so we were going, well, how are we going to end this thing? <laughs> Basically, because on and on. And then um, I had this idea of da 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 idea in my head. And Zero goes, I have this idea, switching the glide, you know? And I went da 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 switching the glide, and it fit together. And then we said, we thought, well, this beat goes on and on and on. Let's just switch into glide, you know? Basically, is that how it happened? Sonny Keys came up with the glide that, that, that fit the two songs together. On the mini Boom. Vogue, yeah. And there it was, and we went, this is great. <laughs> you know, when you sort of know when something is good, you get that, that feeling, you know? And I was driving down the road, and I was thinking about um, when we used to go on vacation when we were kids, we'd go to, like, a you know, in a park somewhere or something. And if there was a hill, my dad would put the car in neutral to go down the hill. Um, so save gas, if you want to yeah, call yeah. it that. And then I just thought about being up in an airplane and turning off the motor and switching to glide. And that was kind of the, uh, the idea behind switching to glide was getting a free ride, if you want. And and, and and that translated to just fitting in perfectly with the music ideas that Dave had. Was it road tested? Did you play it live a bunch of times? We, uh, we did the demo of it. We had booked some time. Um, we we got enough songs together. We were playing with bars around Ontario and all that. And we were writing songs in these lousy hotel rooms. <laughs> and we have some of those old, you know, pieces of paper on the, uh, you know, with the written the, on anything. Yeah, written on anything. On menus, on, on anything. Yeah, <laughs> with, the, uh, with the logo of some lousy motel on the top of the page. <laughs> Uh, envelopes, all that kind of stuff. And then, um, but we had rehearsed those songs yeah, and, and there was a version of it on our, um, the, we went into Nimbus to record a, our, what we thought would be our indie album. And then we were lucky enough to run into Bob Ezrin there. And Okay, so let's stop the story here just for a second because yeah. Bob Ezrin had produced The Wall by that point. Uh, he had worked with Kiss, done Kiss Destroyer. I mean, the list goes on, worked with Lou Reed. I mean, th this was really something. So you're recording at Nimbus 9 Studios, which is a big deal anyway. And then you happen to run into probably the hottest rock producer in the world. So tell me how that worked. The first thing that we worked out with him was to, to mix the, the demo type thing that we had of Switch and Glide. And this beat goes on. And so he did that. And he, you know, once you take the tracks apart, if you're a guy like that, you go, well, these kids don't know what they're doing. And so he, he said, you know, he said, this is good stuff, but you don't know what you're doing. We got to start fresh again. And we're going, Oh no, we just recorded 10 songs and spent every cent we had. Yeah. And he says, well, we're going to start over again, fresh. And it was like, Oh my so God. So he said, look at, <laughs> I go, let me go down to LA. And I know an A&R guy there at Electra records. 
And of course, as you just said, being the number one producer in the world at the time helps when you're going in with an unknown project. <laughs> but they said yes. They played them the, uh, the the version that we had of this beat, Switching to Glide. And, you know, the legend is that they were playing it in the office of this A&R guy right on La Cienega Boulevard where uh, Electra Records had their office. And the window was open and some kids were outside dancing on the sidewalk to it. And of course, we, you know, in subsequent years, every time we start that rip, they start the dance floor fills up, and we've had other bands that do yeah. co that cover it, and DJs have got hold of us. It's just say, as oh, soon yeah. as that thing starts, the dance floor fills up, which is, you know, a key to selling more beer, you know, oh, yeah. which is what we all want when we're in a club, right? So, and that started the interest from Electra to work with that song as a particular single. You're listening to my interview with Dave Diamond and John Picard, AKA Mr. Zero of the Kings. We're talking about the making of their double A-sided giant hit song, This Beat Goes On, Switching to Glide. The music obviously, you know, is, is so hooky and it, and it stays in your head and that's why it works. But I think that the lyrics are a lot of the appeal of this song as well, right? And so a couple of questions about that. Uh, was there a Judy? Was there a Trudy? Uh, or, or were they just names that rhymed? Well, actually, when I was working on that, it was um, somehow it got into my head that, you, you know, the old name game song, right? Banana, banana, bobana. And I just thought there hadn't been a name song in a while. And so it just seemed to make sense. I thought, well, that's a, at least a start and an idea to go with. And then I just thought, well, Trudy, Judy, and then I'm feeling moody. All right, well, that's good. Hey, Judy. Hey, Judy. You said to call you up, and I was feeling moody. And then Donna and Juana, and then what? You know, and then Tirana was just... <laughs> that may be the greatest rhyme in all of, like, Ontario rock and roll, if not in Canada. Those was together. And we got a t-shirt. I, I bought it at the, in Hamilton a year or so ago at, a, at one of the festivals there, and it's got the different spellings, uh, pronunciations of Tirana. He wears it at gigs sometimes. <laughs> pretty good. And the other one was Nothing Matters But The Weekend, which is also gets a yeah. lot of uh, yeah. people remember that one. And that one was, that one came pretty easy from a Tuesday point of view. It was okay, that's good. But the next line was really hard. Like a kettle in the kitchen, I feel the steam begin to brew. That took a long time to get that <laughs> one because it just, when you start with something that's, the, really good the rest of it has to be really good right you know like you, you're setting yourself up to fail well and did either of you or anyone in the band actually own a mercedes because that's uh, the other famous line that sticks in everybody's head well yeah, yeah. we had uh I had, a couple actually it was a couple point. back in the there were all these junkers but one was a 65 220 and the other one that was the main one in the song was a 64 220s it was a good it was a good car for a while and then it just kind of fell apart like they all do <laughs> yeah. but it, it makes for a great line in the song it did yeah you and, know. Um, and so that has a basis in truth and we did have a lot of fun with it for sure hey, lady. 
That was Dave Diamond and John Picard of the Kings. Now, they never had another hit as big as This Beat Goes On, Switching the Glide, but they did get to tour with some of the biggest acts of the time period, including Eric Clapton, Jeff Beck, and Bob Seger, and they appeared on American Bandstand. How cool is that? In 1980, Rough Trade released their second album, titled Avoid Freud. The second single from the album was titled High School Confidential, and it was a giant hit that made you think and dance, and it helped usher in an upheaval in art, fashion, and lifestyle, and moved Rough Trade from the underground cult legends that they were to national critical acclaim. They combined punk rock, R&B, show tunes, satirical wit, and raw sexuality. It was something new, and it still sounds fresh all these years later. Recently, High School Confidential was inducted into the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame. Co-writer and keyboard player Kevin Staples joins me. We begin with the song's origins, how it wasn't written to be performed by Rough Trade at all, but for Willie DeVille, the new wave singer from the band Mink DeVille. by um, <clears throat> William Friedkin was making this movie Cruising with Al Pacino mm -hmm. and uh, Jack Nietzsche through a mutual friend asked us to write a bunch of songs to see you know if they would play in the movie so we did we wrote a, a bunch of songs and some of them made it and some of them didn't and high school was one of the rejects and uh, and it was originally written because we wrote all the songs with the idea that um, you know Mink was going to be singing them because he did the bulk of the music. Yeah, so that's the story on that. And essentially, uh, <clears throat> the inspiration was, you know, a little bit of the 1958 movie and a little bit of just what, you know, what Carol had grown up with in, you know, in her day in high school and, you know, the cool kids and the not so cool kids, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, so, but having that song being sung by a woman, of course, is what gave the song its, you know, really gave it a lot of character. Did it feel like High School Confidential was ahead of its time? Um, not, I mean, you know, I think if you're, if you're cre creative at all, you're never really thinking about blazing new ground. Like, it's not what your sort of, what your focus is. It's only in hindsight that you look back and say, oh, that was kind of different, you know, at the time. But no, I don't think so. I think when we wrote it, it was just, it was just a lighthearted, silly song, in a sense. We were kind of surprised at how much traction it had. And I think it's partly because, of, you know, getting uh, censored on the radio didn't hurt. And uh, again, that, you know, that was Carol singing it. And, and that we did it on the Juno Awards before it was even a record. I mean, we actually performed that before it was recorded. So yeah, that, no. that, that in itself was a peculiarity. That performance of High School Confidential not only helped the song become a huge hit, but in Alberta, a young singer named Katie Lang was watching and later said that seeing Carol Pope perform that song on the Junos, quote, set a tone for me that I could be out. No question. I recently spoke with the legendary Robbie Robertson. I asked him about his First Nations heritage and how the storytelling tradition of his relatives on the Six Nation Reserves influenced him. That segued into a story about the writing of one of his best known songs, The Weight. I've always been drawn 
to story songs, mm -hmm. too. And, you know, all these things that connected for me early on, it's all this connection between music and pictures and stories. So it lives on with me. And the, the songs that, that you have written that have touched people so, there's been so many of them, but I love the story about the song The Weight. Now, I've been hearing this song for as long as I've been alive, almost, and I have an idea of, of what it's about, and I think a lot of people, if you talk to anyone, they'll have an idea of what it's about. But I love that the reference to Nazareth is where your guitar was made. Uh, yeah. You looked down and saw that on your guitar. You gotta have a starting, <laughs> you gotta have a first line. And I didn't know, I didn't know. You sit down and you got a blank canvas mm -hmm. and you think, oh, I gotta write a song. What it, what am I going to write about? And I'm sitting there, the guitar is there, and it says, Nazareth, Nazareth, Pennsylvania. Yeah, like made in Nazareth, Pennsylvania. <laughs> right? right? <laughs> so <clears throat> I, that was the first line, and it, it just it set me off on that. Do you think in, in very specific ways about the way that your heritage has affected your songwriting? You know, I don't really know how to put my finger mm -hmm. on that. And, and dissect it yeah. and really understand, except it's where I come from and it's in the blood. The Weight was a single from the band's debut album, Music, from Big Pink. It is included in Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs of All Time, and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame named it as one of the 500 songs that shaped rock and roll. Now, speaking of having songwriting in their blood, I spoke with Canadian singer-songwriter Davenant Doyle on the release of her album, Liquor Store Flowers, about storytelling and where her songs come from. I love Steve Earle, Lucinda Williams, mm -hmm. Willie Nelson, Patty Griffin. I love storytellers. Yeah. I, I love people who have like good driving music too but but I want to I want to be I want it's like an, I want it to be like an audiobook right on some level you know I want to learn something I want to I want to get the truth of somebody's soul when I listen to music and so when I was making this record I knew it's like nobody's waiting for a Davenant Doyle solo yeah. record <laughs> I'm doing this for myself completely yeah. selfishly um thank you to the government of Canada for <laughs> helping me um and I just wanted it to be something that resonated with me, I wanted to say things I wouldn't say aloud. I wanted to like, literally try and crack my ribs open and get in there and poke at my heart to like stop the steel around my heart, you know, get these things out. And I said things on that record I didn't even know about myself, mm. much like this interview. I've learned a lot about myself <laughs> here today. Thank you. And I, and, but I also wanted them to be good songs and good, yeah. good, good story songs. No Flag, a song from Elvis Costello's new album, Hey Clockface, sounds to my ear like a protest song. So I asked him if music in this fragmented marketplace we have now has the same ability to move people to action that perhaps it did in the 1960s or 70s. I have no idea. Um, that isn't why I write songs. I don't have that ambition for my songs. If a song consoles or infuriates somebody to the point where they are either you know made to feel as if they're not alone in a thought or they stand up and feel like they're shaking the fist at something that's that's their theme song isn't it you know that song no flag is the theme song for that day when you wake up and you feel that there is no philosophy no religion no allegiance no hope that you know 
will console you. To my mind, it's much better to sing about that than to hold it inside like poison. Um, that's always been the way. That's why I write things down, so they're not in my head. And uh, that's the theme song for one uh, outlook. And there's many other songs on the record, as you hear, that, that speak of different days and different feelings. And some of them tender, some of them regretful. And I think that's somewhat like life. American rock, country, and folk singer, songwriter Steve Earle has been writing and recording great songs for decades. But one song in particular, Little Rock and Roller, taught him a valuable lesson about songwriting. I learned a long time ago that this job is about empathy. And you're, you can, the best way to get a, a, a difficult idea across is people don't give a f what, what happened to me. They care about what happened to me that they can relate to. So Johnny Cash came up to me when, I, when Guitar Town was out. I'd met him a few times, but came all the way across the room at a fundraiser we were playing. And he said, I really like that song, Little Rock and Roller. And I was just, you know, it blew my mind that Johnny Cash even knew one of my songs. And uh, I just, um, so I, I, um, um, you know, I, I, you know, I just went on my chest all puffed up. And then a few days later, I, um, a few days later, I was in a truck stop and a truck driver walked up to me and said, you know, I really like that song, Little Rock and Roller. And a light went off. What do me, who wrote the song, Johnny Cash and the truck driver have in common? We got kids and we miss our kids when we're gone. So that was one of the first, I've been doing it. I had learned to do it because I learned from Guy Clark and other people by osmosis. But that was the first time I became conscious of the fact that this job is about empathy. That's, that's what makes it work. That's how you're able to tell really complicated stories in three or four minutes. That's how you're able to get ideas across it that, that are unpopular and possibly, I've had three people over the years and then keep in mind not everybody has access to walk up and talk to me or the opportunity to do that i've had three people come up to me and say something you wrote changed my mind about the death penalty so you can't tell me that music can't change the world because i have experience of that in my life bernie toppin has been elton john's songwriting partner for over 50 years I asked him if, when he hears one of their classic tunes on the radio or in an elevator, if it takes him back to when he wrote it. No, I, I'm just basically happy they're still playing them. <laughs> that's got to be the, you know, the yeah. only answer I can give you. Um, yeah, I mean, if you, you know, I'm home and I'm in the market and, you know, mm -hmm. it's on the PA, yeah. or not the PA, but the sound system, you know. I, Obviously, your ear pricks up, but it, it's just become de rigueur for, you know, yeah. everyday life now. Um, and that, I'm, I'm not being blasé, but as I say, when you stop hearing them, that's when you start to worry. <laughs> I'll give the last word on songwriting to Sting. What's the best thing you can say to a songwriter when you meet them? The best compliment I receive is people will stop me in the street or in a bar and say, oh, I, I fell in love to your song, yeah. or I got married to your song, or we buried Uncle Charlie to one yeah, of your songs. Yeah. So you realize by accident you, you've created the emotional soundtrack to people's emotional landscape. Yeah. And that's pretty serious. It is. And so I, I always take that as the, the best thing you could say to a songwriter. Well, that's it for my look at songs and songwriters. Thanks to all the musicians who sat down and spoke with me to make this special. Most of all, though, as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay safe, and we'll talk again soon.